Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. My co-host Sheila Warren is at an event today in St. Moritz, Switzerland for the CFC. Uh, So unfortunately, she won't be here for this fun ride uh, on Money Reimagined, the first that we are recording within the new year. So it's great to be back. On that note, please do not forget to subscribe, give us a thumbs up, leave a review, all that sort of good stuff. Uh, We do value your feedback. So share your thoughts with us at podcasts at coindesk.com. Use the subject line Money Reimagined. Uh, Let us know what you think. And of course, you know, every week we're here. Coindesk Podcast Network is where you can find us uh, or on Apple, Spotify, or your preferred podcast platform. Well, uh, you know, this week... um, it is the week of the Bitcoin ETF. Um, I am going to, I think, hope that this thing, this particular episode goes to air before we know, because right at this moment, uh, 1 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesday, we are anticipating some sort of uh, response, at least from the SEC, to the much anticipated set of questions, uh, so applications for the approval of a spot Bitcoin ETF from a number of, of significant uh, institutions. And so we'll see what happens. Uh, certainly, the market seems pretty riled up about this. But my guest today is somebody who I think is going to be able to weigh in on this. Again, hopefully, we'll be able to get some thoughts with her before it goes out, and this won't seem a little little redundant. But her name is uh, Hermine Wong, and she's the founder and principal of Hermine Wong, uh, XYZ. She's a lecturer from UC Berkeley School of Law, and she's a renowned expert and thought leader in regulatory issues, policy, fintech, crypto, and Web3. Uh, she's had you know, a wealth of experience in the policy world with uh, uh, working with publicly listed crypto exchange, first publicly listed crypto exchange in the US, worked with the US Securities Exchange Commission, White House, and, and been given all sorts of advice to entities such as that and has spent some time in China as well. So I'm looking to have a great conversation with her. Hermine, thank you for joining us. Welcome to Money Reimagined. Thanks so much for having me, Mike. It's great to be here and uh, great to start the new year. It was, and like, there's a very good reason why this has been a great start to the year because go big blue. Go blue. It was a big win yesterday. I was watching it from a movie theater here in San Francisco, which. Oh, wow. That's like. Not have been better. 
yeah. <laughs> my, my daughter's at Michigan, so I'm sort of being sort of dragged into this for the first time to sort of pay attention to it. But wow, I mean, yeah, exciting. It's so, a good time to be dragged into it. Goodness. Yes, right? I'm <laughs> not, yes you, got, you lucked out. You don't usually uh, start out your your university experience by, by having, you know, national champions uh, in the second year that you're there. But she's, uh, yeah, she's thrilled. I think it was a lot of fun up in, up in uh, Ann Arbor Absolutely. last night. So, yes, because you were there, you studied law at Michigan, yeah? I did, I did. I loved my time at Ann Arbor. My, I will tell you, unlike your daughter, my very first game at Michigan was a fairly notorious loss to Appalachian State in the fall of 2007 which oh. has been hard to live down for many, many, many years, but redemption has come. <laughs> it has. It has definitely come. I think I see Tom Brady out there saying that he thinks J.J. McCarthy is the, uh, the best quarterback they've ever had, which is saying something because Tom Brady himself was a, was a Michigan quarterback. He was a Michigan man. That's right. Um, anyway, listen, let's, we, don't, we, don't, uh, we, we won't wallow in that, nor anyone who was sort of out, out there going for Washington. Sorry, too bad. But, you know, here we are reveling. Anyway, on to crypto matters. Look, yeah, as I said, uh, hopefully this episode airs before we know. So I'm going to ask you to tell me, I mean, do you think we get an approval from the SEC for, uh, for an ETF spot? And what does it look like? What sort of conditions may or may not be on there? It's, it's such an interesting question because I would have given you a different answer two months ago. When, when those first meetings started coming through, I thought that what the SEC was doing was asking for more data so they could rebut that data later on, right? Because after mm. the grayscale loss in court, the SEC was given marching orders like, you have to explain yourself from the DC circuit. You have to explain yourself about why you're rejecting this data. And so I thought that that's what they were thinking about. Having worked at the SEC myself, I remember when I used to work on rulemakings over there, data was the thing that we really wanted to have from the industry for that very reason of like, how do we think about those assumptions? How do we think about what they're saying? And then do we want to rebut that? If we do, what can we offer to rebut that? Now, we've, had, we've seen a lot of these meetings come and they've almost looked like they were pro forma meetings. Like mm. even looking at the attendee list and the frequency that they were happening at, it suggests that we're probably going to see an approval. What I don't know is whether or not we're going to see an approval of all of them at once or if it's going to come in batches and then what those batches are going to look like. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that, that might seem unfair to some people, right? If somebody gets the first chance to head out of the gate and to grab all of that initial interest. So I think that's been one of the reasons why people think there might be a, a group, but yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe some meet muster and some don't. But let me throw a different question at you then. Like what, what is the impact if they don't approve? And not just the price, obviously there may be some disappointment there and the trade happens, but like what would it like with all of the detail you were just describing and all the effort they went to to then turn around and disapprove? You know, what would be the impact perhaps on the relationship between this industry and Washington, which hasn't been in great shape, really, I would say, for the last couple of years? It hasn't been in great shape. It would be interesting if SEC were to disapprove. We would want to see from probably the general counsel's office a lot more of a policy statement about why they are disapproving, right? Because those would be fighting words almost to disapprove at this point. We already know that the industry is willing to foot really large legal bills to make sure that this gets in front of courts, these kinds of fights with the SEC. Having said that, the SEC hasn't been shy about appearing in court either. So I don't know exactly what would happen with a disapproval. I would imagine that a disapproval has both short-term and long-term consequences. And what I mean by that is on the short term, I think, Mike, you're absolutely right. There'd be some sort of market 
fervor about it, drop in the market. Then there would be times of like fighting words. What I think I'm still curious about is what does a Bitcoin ETF really mean about the long term of Bitcoin and crypto's trajectory at mm-hmm. you know, full yeah. scale? And that's because a Bitcoin ETF to me does not mean Bitcoin adoption per se, right? Like it's not the same thing because what you're allowing with a Bitcoin ETF is you're allowing investors to have a way of investing in Bitcoin. But what they're not doing is holding Bitcoin themselves. And if you are really bullish on crypto and Bitcoin generally, you want those people to hold Bitcoin themselves. So, you know, I think that there's still a tension about whether or not this is going to be a huge watershed moment for the industry if you do a Bitcoin ETF approval, or if it turns out to be a little like, yeah, it's going to make some money, but it's like some people more money. But in the long term adoption, it's not going to be all that meaningful. Yeah, you, you could argue that it is um, a departure from the spirit of what Bitcoin was all about, right? I mean, the, the initial concept was that people would sort of own the network. And in the end, that I think also, to some extent, or to a large extent, is undermined by the, uh, the fact that you know, mining became so industrialized. But at the same time, you know, the spirit of people owning their own coins and, and being able to trade on those. And then that, of course, you know, was undermined or at least changed by the, the idea of hosted wallets. But the idea that, yeah, that these large institutions end up owning a bunch of coins on behalf of all these other um, you know, proprietary claims on it is interesting. I mean, the, we saw during the famous you know, New York agreement phase when there was a big debate over whether you know, there would be upgrades to, to Bitcoin with the SegWit change competing with the idea of an increase in the block size. Um, this idea of the, a UASF, the user, it's a, a soft fork, but a, but a user organized soft fork essentially. So the users, I can't remember what the A is, I'll, it'll come to me in a minute. But the, the, the point is that this idea that users were able to then themselves play a game of, of controlling. And it seems like it ultimately won, that the, that the miners were not able to dictate what upgrades were or weren't going to happen with regards to the protocol. And they sort of essentially blocked any increases in the, in the block size. And so the users took control, essentially, which is a very interesting way to think about the dynamics of who controls the Bitcoin network, which then begs me this question, like, what do you do if all of a sudden there are these very large institutions that have you know, meaningful pieces of, of the actual float of Bitcoin the, the, that's out there. I don't have any thoughts on that. Yeah. So I have more policy level thoughts about that, right? Which I think makes the policy argument for some of the value of Bitcoin a little diluted when you have these large institutional holders. Having said that, having the large institutional holders in the crypto and Bitcoin space tells you that they believe at least, that this is, they're banking on this, right? This is something that they're willing to put their money in. They believe that there is long-term value in the Bitcoin space. I think that that is not something that is easily dismissed, regardless of you know some of the policy arguments of the value of Bitcoin. And that's just because when you're trying to reimagine a financial infrastructure, it's not quite the same. Like, you know, when I was sometimes making my own advocacy appeals about the value of this stuff. It's easy to make some of those comparisons to like a day of Uber. And you're like, no, you don't, you don't see that like with Uber adoption, for example, 
and that kind of gig economy, you saw people actually adopting Uber instantly, as opposed to what you could imagine shipping companies trying to, or, you know, trying to take over that industry. That is quite different than trying to reimagine the financial infrastructure. So I, having said that, I think that it's worthy that institutional investors, institutional traditional financial companies are betting on the long-term prospects of Bitcoin. And I think that that, at the end of the day, is going to make people a little more comfortable. It's interesting because when I was still at Coinbase, there was a survey that the University of Michigan was doing. And one of the things that it told us was that, I don't know that this isn't published, this was something like, it was still in the nascent stages, but they were saying that people who were just generally crypto curious, a lot of them would be flipped to being users of crypto if they saw that big institutions, including the government, were somehow using crypto. Because that to them was credibility enhancing. So I think mm -hmm. that when you see large traditional institutions getting in, you might actually see, and we don't know this, we won't know until these Bitcoin ETFs go live, you might go see in a few months time, additional Bitcoin holders as unique holders. And that I think mm -hmm. will be more interesting where we're not going to see it yeah, immediately, so but we might see it in time. It will certainly change the conversation about what it represents, right? It, it will be, I think, to a degree, a legitimization from the eyes of those who see it in traditional terms. But there'll be a lot of diehards who may see this as a dilution of its, of its spirit, right? The idea that this is supposed to be a decentralizing exercise, not one that actually, you know, gives greater weight to these large centralized institutions. So is it a battle for the heart and soul? I, I, I tend to think not. I, I think, in fact, to your point, it may just spur more interest that then leads people down that rabbit hole and they end up saying, you know what, I got to own my own coins and I'm going to do it that way. And it starts, starts to legitimize things. I've often thought Bitcoin is a cultural movement as much as anything else. It's about an understanding of an idea. And its idea is it's not necessarily a, a cookie cutter financial investment concept. It's something that, that requires participation and involvement. And it's a really a way of thinking about the world. Will it drive that? I think it does. Prices tend to spur interest and prices are going to rise, I would think, or at least they have been. And that is going to, that is certainly going to impact the way this is perceived in various ways. Why don't we move to some other topics here? So you've had some interest. You've worked in China in the past. And so I, I take it you've, you've given some thought to the way things are playing out the regulatory front in Asia. Big contrasts, really, not just in Asia, but also in, in Europe. People have been looking for the last couple of years at the kind of more deliberate, seemingly progressive way in which framework legislation and regulation for, around crypto has been developed in other parts of the world in the way that the US hasn't. Um, and that's led to a whole bifurcation and some people suggesting that it's time to move off overseas. Do you see the US catching up to those parts of the world? And do you see, and what, do you, what do you make of, say, you know, the regulatory framework in Singapore and uh, Japan and elsewhere? I think that the regulatory frameworks is, it's helpful to have those models in some of those other jurisdictions to see what people are coming up with. Having said that, the reality is that most of the founders, most of the flow of just value comes through the United States. So as I'm advising startups, one of the things that they really struggle with is where should they domicile themselves? And the reality is that they want to domicile themselves here in the United States because that's where their customer base is. 
that's where they know the audience best. And that's where the flow of value is coming through for the most part. So it's helpful to have those frameworks. It is a wake-up call, I think, for the United States about how long they're willing to sit on the sidelines while other countries are slowly, I think, stealing some of that human capital away. But it's not happening immediately, right? We're not seeing this huge exodus of crypto startups from the United States. I do think, though, that a lot of crypto startups and Web3 startups are giving it a closer look than they have in the past. And I suppose if it drags on longer to the degree to which, you know, we we see these other jurisdictions develop and a framework that people appreciate, and the U.S. doesn't do so, the bigger that risk. He's saying it's not happening in a flood yet, but like we're going into an election year. We are an election year. It just began. Not a lot of, of hope, I would think, within that context for any landmark crypto legislation to happen anytime soon. So what, what's your outlook for that? So I, I agree. I don't think that anyone's going to expect any sort of crypto legislation this year. I think that what the crypto industry really needs to do in this year, knowing that there's not going to be legislation, is try to find opportunities for general adoption more and more. The more adoption you get, the more that people show up to town hall events, right? The more that they show up to any sort of potential candidates speaking event and ask about crypto, demonstrate their curiosity and where they're willing to ask questions, right? Because you've got to think that these legislators, they've got a lot of noise that they themselves are battling about the kinds of issues. There's Ukraine, there's Israel and Gaza, there's abortion, there's gun violence, there's taxes, there's inflation. Those are a lot of the top of mind issues. If you're able to get crypto or Web3 to break through that noise at those kinds of events, they think that that represents, oh, my constituents actually care about this issue. I need to learn more about that issue then. That is, in some ways, the building year for the industry in being able to get that to resonate. So what do you make of the various crypto firms that have taken the fight to Washington? You know, you've had a number of lawsuits that have been filed against the SEC. Uh, and there's this stand with crypto movement that Brian Armstrong is championing from Coinbase, who you worked with previously. You know, is that the right stance or should we, should people be, you know, trying to be more accommodating and compromising with, you know, with Congress or with the agencies? Yeah, it's, it's one of these themes that is actually quite challenging with any disruptive tech. And I will say that whether it's crypto or whether it's the internet of the nineties or whether it's AI, there's always been kind of at its root a, a nascency of adversarialness. And I think that that's because at the very beginning of these conversations, often these startups or these disruptive tech industries, they don't have anyone to put in front of policymakers, but for the founder, CEO, engineer, um, or their IP tech lawyer. And the IP, you know, more often than not, it's going to be your IP tech lawyer who's trained to be much more sophisticated uh, in the tech than their peers. So they can come off as patronizing or else they're trained as being talking in court or talking to opposing counsel, by its mm. nature, adversarial. And so I think that it's unfortunate that that is true of disruptive tech time and time again. And that's what we're seeing now is that the crypto industry is maturing, but there's a bit of a deficit that it dug itself in the very beginning because it probably wasn't thinking about who can it have as the ideal advocate in front of these policymakers. 
So is this the right stance to take right now? I think that hopefully what we'll see is with the fights, like certainly the legal fights are important to have. It comes up with new law, always great. But then the advocacy strategy, I would hope that in time, it's less of an adversarial advocacy strategy of, hey, if you don't do what we say, we'll come for you because of X. But rather, hey, we represent all of these small businesses. We represent all of these people who are have access to financial opportunities that they didn't before. We represent all these ways of doing new value that could not exist but for us. And I'm hoping that that's the message that will resonate in time in this 2024 period. Yeah, and that gets to your point before about, I think, about the need for adoption, right? If you've got adoption, you're able to bring those people with you to say, hey, these are the people who are affected by this, and it's a much more kind of constructive conversation than adversarial. Although I do think you're right that, yes, disruptive tech always does come at it from a, a position where it is up against the establishment. I would argue that crypto is even more so because philosophically it's sort of like, it exists for the very purpose, if you like, of decentralizing away those intermediaries. So it's it's an interesting challenge because I do think that the spirit of crypto needs to be that. And yet at the same time, without some sort of accommodative position from regulators, that desire for adoption, this need for adoption that you're referring to is also held back. And so you're stuck with this chicken and egg kind of problem. But at the same time, prices keep rising, and, and that's you know it seems to be the way in which we 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 have an impact here. You know, I, I actually wish it were more uh, use cases and stories and individuals and human beings who were affected by it than hey, number go up, right? But you know, this is what we got, so so we'll see. Yeah, I like you know, and I think that the idea that crypto spirit is anti-establishment, like I think that that's true to some degree, but I also think that it is about access and opportunity as well, right? Like it is part of the anti-establishment was to democratize access. Like, and, and that I think is a theme that I hope will resonate more and more about this idea of democratizing access. Yes. It's like a consequence of that is to break some of those bonds of the traditional establishments, but that I think of as being a true spirit that becomes as a policy person, that's the bipartisan part of the policy themes for crypto. Yeah, I think that, that's, a, that's a good way to put it. I, I would agree. Like it's, yes, it, it's, it's de- by default, you end up anti-establishment when it comes to those institutions that get in the way of that. But ultimately, you know, we need to drive, drive adoption. And, and, and in doing so, yeah, it's democratizing. It's, it's, it's increasing access. So what do you see as the biggest opportunities with that regard? Like where should adoption be driving? Are you interested in the, I don't know, there's, there's a lot of conversation on tokenization, of course, you know, but we've still got, you know, all the other use cases, the DeFi use cases, the NFT use cases. What, where do you see adoption um, being driven? I, I do think that tokenization, it seems like the term du jour, but it's a term du jour that I think is meaningful to a new population, right? Like that's, again, when trying to drive adoption, you want to access new populations that haven't already entered this space naturally. And I think that tokenization represents that, you know, whatever real world asset that may be, whether or not it's the, you know, the holy grail of real estate market, right? Or if it's going to be art world, or if it's going to be securities, whatever that may, or, you know, whatever that may be. I do think that if we can get that solved, that will open up access to new populations that we haven't seen yet come into the market. 
I have not given up on NFTs either. I talk to a lot of startups and a lot of in, here in San Francisco, especially, there's still a lot of artists, creators who are bullish about NFTs and NFTs giving them access to their direct audience in a way that, again, they're in a really like crap situation of being owned by the galleries, owned by the production companies, whatever that may be. And so in the studios. So I think that that is an area that the artist community is still trying to figure out how do they make NFTs take off. I'm hoping that this is the year where they can figure that out. Yeah. All right. I, I tend to believe it as well. I think there's there's real, real meaningful uh, impact from NFTs when you bring it into that creative world. All right. Listen, I'm going to wind it up there. First of all, I'm going to say that, that the it's a user-activated soft fork. That was where my brain uh, <laughs> default happened. I was trying to get to remember the, the, the A and the UASF. That's what I was referring to. I love to. it because now I've learned something new. And now I'm going to- It's an interesting period in Bitcoin history. It's worth looking back on. It really, I think, you know, and it raises questions about where the real power lies within the structure of, of, of all that the ecosystem represents, right? There's the users, there's, there's the investors, there's the um, you know, th- there's there's the miners, right? There's people who are running nodes. They all all have some impact on what Bitcoin actually is and how it develops. And the question of how that power is distributed, I think, is very interesting. It's going to be a very important question when these new big institutions come in. I, I think the beauty of sorry, I'm just going to wax lyrical on this for a little bit, but like, I think one of the beauties of it is that you know, Bitcoin has had a chance to grow. Like, it really is much more widely owned than people realize. It's almost a trillion. I think it probably is pretty close to passing a trillion dollars in market cap right now. So it is a very large, you know, institutionally uh, diffuse ecosystem. And sure, a BlackRock and a Fidelity that's coming in and taking up a, a chunk of that ownership is going to be meaningful at the, at the, at the margins. But I have hope that the spread is, is just impossible now to to actually take charge of it is sufficiently decentralized which is the beauty of, of bitcoin in, in in many many ways on that note having my last word as i tend to i'm gonna uh call it call it quits now i mean thank you so much for being with us that was hameen wong from uh wong.xyz and a prominent lawyer and advisor in this space it's been a pleasure talking to you uh, and thank you to all of you for joining us do make sure you come back next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. Please do not forget to subscribe. Give us a thumbs up or leave a review. We do value your feedback. And we'll see you next week, which uh, is likely to come to you from, from Davos, actually. So where Sheila and I will be attending some of that usual shenanigans in, in that part of the world. So looking forward to that. See you next time. Bye. Bye.